all start like, it's very pretty, it's a very pretty song. We all start like singing along with it, don't you think? La da 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 da. So next week, we'll be doing this for a couple more weeks, so, so join in as that comes on, sort of him along. All right, and um, yeah, I don't know how much brilliance there will be at the end of this. We will be taking questions, um, but uh, he put the pressure on me. I'm supposed to, I'll try to have a little brilliance in, in the message, not to save it all for the end. But do remember to text in the questions. The questions, uh, you can text this number. What's the number? 321 So as I'm going through this message, you have questions, just text in that, and then we'll try to get to a few of those at the end of uh, the message. And I uh, encourage you to come to the hymn sing, if you can, on Friday, uh, though women are also included in that. <laughs> hymn sing, her sing. It's a her sing. All right. Okay, it was bad. I know it was bad. Sorry. Can't have every joke funny, crying out loud. So uh, I don't know if they're going to be singing this uh, on, on, on Friday, but uh, today we're looking at the Pietists, and uh, they, they were known as, uh, for making some marvelous hymns. Charles Wesley, who was the brother of John Wesley, and we'll be talking about John Wesley here in a moment, but he, he would take songs, a lot of the, the converts they got were uh, the drunks off the street in London, and, uh, and these guys didn't want to go to church or anything like that because church was too stodgy. I'll say more about that a little bit later on. So they formed their own little kind of groups, and they, uh, what Charles did is he'd take these bar songs that these guys all knew because they went to the bar every night, and he would put Christian lyrics to it. And uh, some of our, our great hymns are actually old bar tunes. Like my favorite hymn of all time is uh, And Can It Be. Uh, do you know that hymn? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? If you know it, sing with me. Died he for me who caused such pain. Da, 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 da. Amazing love, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Amazing love, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Yes! Marvelous! And you see, you know, okay, now, now, to take that to its B.C. Uh, time, uh, you can see that before Christ, before it became a Christian hymn. These guys sit around the pub, and they're just, you know, had a little beer in hand, and they're, I got so drunk, I fell on my face. My wife did think I's a big disgrace, or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> that's good. Take back music for God. All right, that's what it's about. All right. Okay, uh, so we're uh, doing this series called Tapestry, because we're looking at uh, the Christian, the church tradition, and uh, the various threads, streams of the uh, Christian tradition that have gone into uh, forming the identity of Woodland Hills Church. We're kind of a strange church because we don't fit neatly into any one particular denomination. So we're trying to help people understand the, the tapestry of different beliefs and streams of the Christian tradition that have come to bear on the identity of Woodland Hills Church. And this morning we're going to talk about pietism, uh, the pietistic strand of the Christian tradition, how that has influenced uh, the theology and practice of Woodland Hills Church. And usually I do a scriptural reading up front when I preach and then uh, talk about that passage. But because we're looking at the Christian tradition here, I'm going to give a little background first. And then we'll have uh, passages uh, being brought in to bear a little later on uh, as we go on. So first, uh, pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, we want to submit this moment to you. We want to submit this message to you. We pray, God, that you make it a kingdom moment. We're not interested in a speech. We, we, we need to have an encounter 
And uh, God, would you infuse this word with your authority and open our hearts and minds to receive your word and use it, God, to build your kingdom uh, in whatever ways that they need building in our heart to form us into the image of Jesus Christ. And God, I, I pray that you'd use it to set a fire in those of us who need a fire set inside of us. Uh, God, to tear down lies for those of us who have strongholds of lies in our, our minds and hearts. I pray for everyone in this auditorium and everyone listening through podcasts. God, bless our podrishners and everyone listening through uh, television, any other means. We just pray, God, that you'd use this message to further your kingdom, to teach us, instruct us, to form Wilden Hills as a tighter community. Mm, do it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, so pietism uh, was this movement in the 17th and 18th century that was really reacting against the dead church of the time. Uh, the prevailing understanding of, of Christianity in this uh, era, at least of Western Christianity, the prevailing understanding was that you, you sort of are born into your religious identity. That is, if you're born in a Catholic country, it's assumed that you'll be a Catholic. And if you're born in a Lutheran country, it's assumed you'll be Lutheran and believe Lutheran things and go to a Lutheran church. And if you're born into a Presbyterian country, then you'll, you'll be Presbyterian. So Christianity is sort of a religion that you inherit religion that you're born into. Uh, and the idea is that then you, you, you believe those things, you go to church, you die, and then go to heaven, and that's about it. And that leads for a very uh, kind of dead faith. There wasn't any kind of passion, any kind of vibrancy. And the pietists saw this. They were called pietists because they believed that everyone needed to live, live a pious life. But they didn't mean by that kind of living just a, a bunch of holy rules, but rather you need to have a relationship with Jesus that's reflected in your life. They saw that everybody needs a personal relationship with Christ. The center of the Christian faith is relationship, not religion. I'll say a little bit more about that a little bit later on. So that was the pietistic movement. Uh, and folks, it was, it was really new at the time. Uh, people believed that the monks, the priests, the holy people, they needed to have a relationship with God, but everyone else is sort of, well, we just sort of attend church, and, uh, and that's about it. These folks said, no, everybody needs a relationship with Christ at the center of everything is a real, real relationship with a real Savior. Now, the, the most famous of all the pietists was a man named John Wesley. I want to talk a little bit about him. He's the founder of Methodism. John was born in 1703. He was the 15th child of uh, Sam and Susanna Wesley. They had 19 kids altogether. Folks had large families back then. Only 10 of them, of uh, the kids, survived into adulthood, and that was pretty typical for the infant mortality rate back then. Uh, John was sent away to boarding school at the age of 11, and then he went to uh, Oxford in 1720 when he was 17 years old. In 1729, he joined this club that his uh, older brother Charles, that's the guy who did all the hymns, uh, his, his brother Charles had started, and it was called the Holy Club. They called themselves that. Uh, we were the Holy Club. Uh, but they didn't mean anything pretentious by it. They just were, were about studying holiness. They wanted to live a holy life. And so they'd get together, these Oxford students, and they'd, they'd study the Bible and study religious classics and pray together and hold one another accountable and apply spiritual disciplines to their life. And that's why the fellow Oxford students called them Methodist because they were so methodical in applying the spiritual principles and spiritual disciplines to their life. They were Methodist, and that's where the word comes from. Okay, so John is ordained uh, in the, Ang the Anglican Church, the Church of England, in 1735, I believe. And uh, then he, he accepts a call to come to America and be a missionary. And his brother Charles followed. His brother Charles is an interesting guy because he always was in the shadow, uh, shadows of his more famous brother, and he was okay with that. 
Uh, he composed these songs and things of that sort, but he was always there to support his brother. So when, when John went to America, Charles went to America. And they're on this ship named the Simmons, and they get caught in this terrible storm. And it's, it's so bad that everyone's sure this ship is going to sink. The mask of the ship broke, and, and everyone's freaking out. But John notices this one group of people that weren't freaking out. They're called the Moravians. It was a group of Anabaptist pietists, Moravians. And these folks were just as calm as all get out, singing songs and praying uh, while um, uh, the ship is, is, is going to sink. And so John noticed that, was impressed by that. He saw in them something that he didn't have. And that was his first contact with pietism, and it was going to re- remain in contact with the pietists and with the Moravians for the rest of his life. They exercised a strong influence on him. So they obviously made it to America safely, uh, made it through the storm. And uh, John and Charles begin their missionary work, and it falls flat on its face. It just doesn't go anywhere. Uh, John's preaching is stale and lacks conviction and lacks passion, uh, and it just falls flat. The the parishioners in Savannah, Georgia, where they're doing their missionary work, uh, are not very happy with him. They're not making any converts. They're there to try to uh, save the, the Native Americans, and hardly anyone's coming to faith. It's just a failure. After about a year, they're thinking about leaving. And then all shist hits the fan. Things go from bad to worse. Uh, all Hades broke out. Because here's what happened. Here's what happened. Uh, John, on the way over here, maybe it was the, the storm. You know, when you're in life-threatening situations, it causes uh, weird bonding experiences with people. You know, I don't know. But, but he, he fell deeply in love. He had a f- passionate, romantic relationship with this hot chick named uh, uh, Sophia Hopke. She was attractive, I, I'm, I'm told. And uh, so they had a, a very intense relationship, but it didn't last very long. Uh, soon after they landed in America, John broke it off. Uh, this did not make Sophia very happy at all. She was mad. She claimed that John had promised to marry her. Uh, and John denied that. But um, uh, breaking off an engagement in those days was almost as bad as breaking up a marriage. And so this was a severe thing. She was very wounded. Uh, but that was that. End of relationship. Uh, but she couldn't have been that wounded because she got married soon after that to a guy named William Williamson. Uh, he had connections with people in high place, places, kind of a high society sort of a guy. And unfortunately, they live uh, in the area where John and Charles are doing their missionary work and sometimes attend his church. So uh, John's the pastor of this church, and one day they show up and they're taking communion, and John doesn't give Sophia communion. Uh, now, the pastor had the right to do that back in those days because if you thought that person had some unconfessed sin in their life, you could withhold communion. Uh, communion was not a little private thing, and it wasn't like we do it, where you go to the sides and no one really sees who does it or who doesn't do it. You came up and got communion so everybody could see this. It was a public rebuke. Sophia now is really ticked off at John. Her husband is really ticked off at John, so much so that they file a lawsuit against him for defamation of character, and they trump up some other charges. And this guy's got connections to some pretty powerful people, that, so they cause a lot of trouble for John. They smear his reputation, get him into a lot of legal problems. It goes to court. The judge looks at this, throws it out, calls for a mistrial. Uh, this is not legit. So John now is so deflated that he really wants to head back to England. And this Sophia gal, well, they still say hell has no fear like a woman's scorn, and this was true of Sophia. Because she uh, tried to block him from leaving. She just wanted to put him in his grave. I don't know what she wanted, but they, they filed another lawsuit. Uh, against him because you couldn't leave the country if you had a lawsuit against you so they file another lawsuit but john can't take it any longer so he literally escapes america to go back home finds a ship and he and his brother come back to england he comes back he's deflated he's depressed he's spiritually you know just just bottomed out he's almost hitting the bottom and then he finds god where god's usually found he hangs out at the bottom 
Uh, you know, if, if you're wondering where God is, just get really depressed and you'll find him. He's down there. <laughs> he hangs out at the bottom. So, so John is in despair and he finds God. What happened is he attends the Alder, uh, Aldersgate uh, Church in London. It's a Moravian church. He starts you know, learning from these Moravians. They got something that he lacks. So he's going to their church in this one night, May 24th, 1738. Uh, he's hearing a sermon. Actually, it wasn't a sermon. It was a person who was reading uh, the preface, Luther's preface, to the book of Romans. And that was the sermon. That's what they did for sermons back then. They read commentaries. You guys are so lucky. I mean, you think I'm boring. Try to read a commentary for a sermon. Today we're going to read from the preface of blah, blah, blah. Uh, but this is the sermon. And uh, God was using it because in the middle of that sermon at 845, John wrote in his journal, 845 that night, as this person's reading the preface to Romans, John... He says he feels his heart strangely warmed. And uh, that's an understatement. He had an encounter with God that changed his life. It changed everything. Um, uh, he, he, for the first time, really got that, that what Christianity is about is not just a bunch of beliefs, and it's not about living just a bunch of holy behavior. John was doing that already intensely. But it's about a relationship, a real relationship with the real Savior. And he experienced the reality of Jesus Christ. And it changed everything. Now his, his preaching did not lack conviction. He had a fire, and his life had a fire. He had a passion, and the rest of his life was spent living that out. He just was passionate about the kingdom of God. So this completely changed everything. Now, a little while after this, he uh, comes in contact with an old friend from the Holy Club, a guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield is an interesting guy. He was an Anglican priest, uh, one of the greatest expositors and preachers uh, throughout in, in all of history. Um, it was just incredible. And he, he had this authoritative, booming voice, which I lack. Uh, and and he, he, he could be out in the field preaching to people, and they say you could hear it a half mile away. And he could do that all day long, and his voice never got hoarse. Um, he's just an incredible guy. Uh, he's a, a, a priest in the Church of, of, of England, but he sees that the, the Church of England is missing it. Because the sinners aren't coming to the church. You have all these sinners all over the place, throughout Europe and in London in particular. And drinking was a terrible problem. Alcoholism all over the place. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. And these folks didn't want to come to the stodgy, dead church. So George Whitfield says, if the sinners aren't going to come to church, we've got to bring the church to sinners. So he goes out and he starts preaching at the workplaces where people would go to work, these factories. And he preached in the morning while they're coming to work. And he preached that in the evening when they're leaving from work. This is what he did all week long. It was incredibly successful. People started coming early to work just to hear him preach, and they'd stay afterwards just to hear him preach. And, and people would give their hearts to Christ, and, and it was causing something of a movement. Now, the church didn't like it at all. Uh, the church slammed it, criticized it. It was, it was seen as being indecent to take a sermon and go out to the places where the sinners are and to preach. No, sermons are for church. And, and this was, no one ever heard of this before. This is ridiculous. And so he was banned from a lot of the churches. Uh, they didn't want to have any fellowship with him, which is fairly typical of, of, of Christians. When God does a new thing, those who are getting their life from the status quo get angry and try to shut it down. Uh, but George Whitfield didn't care. He's out there preaching. But it's so successful, he needs help. So he, he, found, he heard that his old friend John from the Holy Club is back in, in England. So he calls John up and says, gets him on the phone and says, Hey, John. Uh, listen, I, 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 got more, I got more converts here than I can handle. Will you come and help me out? And John says, hey, I just got a new fire in my life, and I, I'd be glad to help you out. Now, it's kind of dicey because George Whitfield was this staunch Calvinist who believed that God predestines everything. And, and, and John Wesley had, was an advocate believer in free will. Uh, so there's a little bit of a diciness here uh, you know, going on. But they made it work for a couple of years, and, and they worked together. So John becomes a field preacher. 
And he starts forming these groups. These, these, these folks don't want to go to church, and, and really John and George weren't that excited about sending them to church because the church was all dead and stodgy and whatever and couldn't handle these folks or just judge these folks. So they started forming their own little uh, groups fashioned after the Holy Club back there in, in uh, Oxford. And, and so when these people would get saved, he put them in these small groups, and the small groups would study the Bible and study uh, classic uh, works on spiritual literature, and they'd apply the spiritual disciplines of their life, and they'd hold one another accountable and pray and all of that sort of things. And they called these little groups Methodist chapels uh, uh, because they're so methodical about applying the spiritual disciplines to their life. And that's, that was the birth of the Methodist church that we still have with us to this day. So the, things went pretty well. John was the organizer, did some preaching. George Whitfield was doing the preaching. They were working side by side. But then in 1741, they split up. And the reason they split up was because John, in preaching to a group of leaders of these uh, Methodist chapels, uh, preached this very famous, not very famous sermon on salvation. And in this sermon, he said that the God of Calvinism is worse than the devil. George was not happy with that sermon. And then, to make matters worse, uh, John published it in writing, and it got sent all over the place. So at this point, George Whitfield has had it. He says, we, we, you know, we, we got split up. Uh, they remained friends throughout their life, cordial friends, um, but they could not work together. So they go their separate ways. Uh, and John, because he's a good organizer as well as a good preacher, he has these, these fellowship groups, so his movement survives to this day. George Whitfield was just a good evangelist but didn't have much organizational skills, couldn't get his converts into uh, groups and organize them like that. So his movement pretty much died when he died. And it shows the importance of not just being a believer but being a disciple and to be in community and to be discipled and stuff like that. It's a value that we'll talk about uh, later on when we talk about Anabaptist uh, theology and how it impacts us. So John spent the rest of his life riding around on a horse, uh, preaching to sinners wherever you could find them, and, and shepherding these Methodist chapels. Uh, these groups uh, stayed inside the Church of England all the while John was alive, but afterwards uh, the, Method the, the Anglican Church didn't want much to do with these radicals who were breaking all the rules, and so they formed their own sort of fellowship, which became Methodism. Um, he traveled, it's said, about a quarter million miles in his lifetime, just traveling around on a horse back uh, to preach to the various and to shepherd the various uh, Methodist chapels, uh, and he preached an average of two times a day throughout the rest of his life. Just incredible. He had a passion uh, to see the church grow. Uh, that didn't do much for his love life, however. Being on the road like that, and uh, you know, Americans, it's not a biography unless we say something about his love life. Well, his his love life really stunk. Uh, you know, he already had one kind of failed relationship on that uh, boat uh, coming over here, uh, and he really should not have tried to. Do marriage because he was just his passion was for the church and shepherding and preaching. But he did get married to a widow, uh, uh, Versailles, I think her name was. And uh, at the age of 48, he married this, this lady. And it really, no one knows why he did that. You know, love's a strange thing. But she was not on board with some of the stuff he, I mean, I don't think a lot of women would be on board with a guy who's home at most one day a month. He's out there, you know, traveling all the time. Plus, John had this nasty habit of giving things away. Uh, he, he said at one point in one of his writings that he, he, whenever he gets any money, uh, he wants to give it away quickly, lest it find its way into his heart. Uh, now, Versailles wasn't quite as quick with that. <laughs> she was living in poverty. This guy could have had a, you know, a, a lot of money, but he kept on giving it away. He just was known as being this outrageously generous guy. And so after 15 years of uh, what really hardly even counts as a marriage, she leaves him. 
Now, they didn't get officially divorced because he didn't do that back in those days, but they, that was the last they saw of each other. And John, on the night where he found out that she had left, he wrote in his journal, I did not forsake her, I did not dismiss her, but I will not recall her. <laughs> not, a love, not a lot of love lost there. Why would I go chase after this? So he dies at the age of 87. His last words were, best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. And then he died. And uh, leaving behind this, this, this movement. So he was a really a, a, a real clear expression of pietism, one of the most famous expositor uh, and advocate of pietism. So now let's talk about three ways that the pietist movement affects or is part of the identity of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, first of all, we, with the, the, the pietistic movement, we believe that everybody needs a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The foundational pillar of pietism, we, we believe that. The, the, the pietists saw that this religion of Christianity wasn't cutting it. Uh, you, you can't inherit real Christianity. You can't be born into real Christianity. You can't ride someone else's coattail uh, in Christianity. You can't perform your way into Christianity. Christianity is at its heart a relationship with God, a real relationship with a real Savior, a real relationship with a real God through the real mediator, Jesus Christ. It's at the foundation of the Pietistic movement, and it's a foundational belief of Woodland Hills Church. This is really the difference between the religion of Christianity and the real thing. The religion of Christianity on the one hand and the relationship that is real Christianity on the other hand. See, religion always tries to substitute something for the relationship. That's, that's how I would define religion. And it's the reason why we at Wilderness Hills Church are not fans of religion. If any, folks once in a while will ask me if I'm religious and I say, heck no! Don't, you know, don't insult me. Uh, I, I, religion's not some, something that is positive. It can do some positive things, but, but we see it as being really hostile to the reality of the relationship because religion always tries to substitute something for the relationship. Um, Jesus, when he comes into this world, he, he really kills religion. He, he's really, he just kills religion. Uh, because he says that in a lot of different ways that there's no, there's no substitute for the relationship. If you want to be right with God, you have to have a real, real relationship with God. It's the only way. And the way to have a right relationship with God is through him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, in religion, you, 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 your security is found by doing certain things and believing certain things. Uh, if you just believe these things that we tell you to believe and do these things that we tell you to do, well, then you're okay. And so religion will tell you that if you'll believe in this doctrine of the atonement or believe in this view of the Bible or believe in, in, in these sacraments, well, then you're going to be okay. Or, or if you believe in the Quran or believe in the Bhagavad Gita or what have you, well, that's your security before God. And, and if you'll just do what we tell you to do, if you'll just take communion or if you'll just get baptized or you'll just go to confession enough or if you'll just uh, uh, fast this much or if you'll just pay tithes or in other religions, if you'll just kill the goat and sacrifice the chicken and in ancient religions, if you'll just sacrifice your child and kill who your God tells you to kill, well, that's your security before God. You're always trained to appease God in religion. Get secure by what you do and what you believe. Jesus comes into this world and he kills that. By saying that the only way to be right with God is to have a real relationship with God. In a lot of different ways, he, he, he says this. In John 17, we, we, we see this. He, he has this prayer. He's praying to the Father. And in the course of praying this, he says, Now this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life. The biblical concept of know is not intellectual knowledge, by the way. It's not knowing about you. It's knowing you. And knowing, knowing God in this sense is, is, it has a connotation of intimacy. 
Eternal life is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is itself eternal life with God. Intimacy with God is itself salvation. Intimacy with God is itself your security before God. You don't need anything else, and, and you can't get anything else. The relationship stands by itself. It is your security. So if you want a right relationship with God, you have to have a real relationship with God, and there's no substitutes. You can believe all the true things in the world and do all the righteous deeds in the world and have all the religion in the world, but if you don't have the relationship with God, then it's nothing. It's zippo. It's worthless. It's, it's, it's filthy rags. It, it just doesn't do anything. It's just religion. It's just religion. See, the reality is not about the religion. Now, if you have a real relationship with God, you'll do some of these things and you'll believe certain things, but, but those aren't your source of security. You don't get life from that. Your, your life and your security is found in the relationship. And so... The Pietists believe that the relationship was central, and John Wesley believed that the relationship was everything. And so we here at Woodland Hills Church believe that the relationship is everything because we think Jesus taught that the relationship is everything. And so the question I want to ask you this morning, you here in the auditorium and all who are listening through podcasts or any other means, is this. Do you have the relationship? Do you have the relationship? Uh, that's not about... Uh, asking any question about how oh, do you go to church or do you believe this or believe that or I, it's no this is a separate question do you have the relationship it's the all important question um, and that's just about surrendering your life to God through Jesus Christ asking for forgiveness for all that you've done wrong and surrendering your life committing your life to live for him do you have the relationship do you have the relationship but if you don't then right now, I encourage you, if there's anything pulling on your heart towards this, I encourage you right now just to surrender your life to him. As I'm talking right now, you just commit, just ask for forgiveness and surrender your life to him. And that begins the relationship. And if you do that this morning, I encourage you to come up here and, uh, at the end of the service and uh, we have prayer teams up here and just tell them that you made that decision so you can start now walking that out. Because like any relationship, you can't just say it and then be done with it. No, it's, it's lived day by day by day in community with others in the body of Christ. Do you have the relationship? So that's the first aspect in which pietism has influenced Woodland Hills Church. The second one has to do with free will. Free will, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that this is something that Woodland Hills, or at least I, am passionate about. This is where George Whitfield and John Wesley split apart. See, George Whitfield believed, like many people have believed throughout history, and many people today believe, believe that everything is predestined. By God, before the world even is created. Everything's predestined, pre predetermined. And so, whether it's good or evil, it's pre pre predetermined. Whether it's a blessing or a curse, it's predetermined. Whether you go to heaven or hell, it's predetermined. If, if you're predestined to go to heaven, you're one of God's chosen, the elect. If you're predestined to go to hell, well, then you're one of the reprobate. And they believe that the majority of people are actually predestined to go to hell. Uh, and George Whitfield believed that, uh, for that reason, that Jesus died just for the elect. His death was only for the elect. He wouldn't die for the people that the Father predestined to go to hell. That would be weird for the Son trying to save people that he knows the Father is predestined not to be saved. That wouldn't make any sense at all. And so they believed in what's called limited atonement. Jesus died only for the elect. John Wesley was revolted, repulsed by this picture of God. To the point where, as I said earlier, uh, he said, this picture of God is worse than the devil. Uh, for John Wesley, uh, he saw this as as introducing a duplicity in God that you don't find in the devil. And the devil, you know what you're getting with the devil. He's evil. Everyone knows that. He's evil. You see it coming. But John says in this picture of God, God is controlling the devil. And yet God is supposed to be all holy and all good. 
as he's controlling the devil, who is now supposed to be evil for doing what God controls him to do. And John said, that makes God worse than the devil. Uh, he, he, he thought there was a duplicity there. It's like God says he loves everybody, but then he damns uh, the, the majority of people to go to hell. What kind of love is that? And God says he loves everybody, uh, but, but he, he isn't demonstrated. And God tells us to love everybody, uh, but then he doesn't. And so that makes him hypocritical. He's, he doesn't practice what he preaches. And God then tells us to resist sin, but predestines the sinners to sin. What's up with that? And God says he hates evil, but he predestines evil. And God tells us to fight evil, but then he, he, he predestines the evil that we're supposed to fight. And even whether we fight it or not, it's something that's predestined. John saw that as being duplicitous, and therefore he said it is worse than the devil, and that's why the two had to split apart. John, in contrast to that, didn't believe that everything was predestined. Some things are predestined, but not, not the choices that free agents make. And we here within those church stand in that tradition. We believe that people and angels have free will. We believe in free will for a number of reasons. We see throughout the Bible that God gives choices to people. So in Deuteronomy 30, for example, the Lord says, I set before you today uh, blessings and curses, life and death. And then he says, choose life. Choose life uh, that, 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 that you and your children may live. God wants us to choose life, but he doesn't make us choose life. We can't choose death if we want. We see this just kind of woven throughout the whole Bible. Uh, we believe in free will because we see places where, where, where people resist God's will, even thwart God's will. So, for example, in Luke 7, it says that the Pharisees and other experts in the law, they, they, they resisted God's purpose. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. God had a purpose for them, and it was good because God is good, and all of his purposes are good. But these folks and people in general have the ability to reject it, to thwart it. C.S. Lewis thought that the greatest act of omnipotence was making creatures who could say no to him. I, I agree with that. Uh, folks have the ability to say no to God's will. We believe in free will because we, we see that in the Bible, God wants everyone to be saved. God is patient, Peter says. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance and turn and have a relationship with him. He wants everybody to be part of this. Uh, we believe in free will because we see throughout the Bible when God, when God is rejected, it, it grieves his heart. His heart breaks. He doesn't always get his way. He loves people, but people sometimes don't love him back. Uh, and, and so, for example, in Romans, it says, he's quoting Isaiah here. Uh, the Lord says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to this obstinate and disobedient people all day long. And you get a picture of God here stretching out his arms saying, come to me. I want to give you life. I want to give you myself. I want you to share in my, the bliss of my eternal love. But we have the ability to be obstinate and disobedient and say no. And it breaks his heart. Throughout the Bible, you see a God who, whose heart gets broken. And then you find, uh, as we read the Bible, we believe in free will because we see that Jesus died for everybody. John says he didn't die just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. I don't know how much, much clearer you can get. Uh, and and, and he's, he, what he's getting at here is, uh, really, he's confronting this. Don't ever think that you're some kind of special class where Jesus only died for you, but not them. No, 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 no. He, he died for you. That's wonderful. But he died for everybody. He died for everybody. And that's why we want to share this good news with everybody. Because God wants everybody to be saved. And so we here at Wilderness Hills Church are passionate about preaching that God loves everybody. And Jesus died for everybody. And God wants everybody to come into the kingdom. It's free for all. Like we sang a little earlier, it's free for all. Whom the Son says free is free indeed. And the Son wants to set everybody free. Everybody. And, and if, if he wants to set everybody free, it means he wants to set you free. And if God loves everybody, it means he loves you. 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 
I, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed, however gross, however heinous, however ugly, however mean-spirited, however debaucherous, however diabolical, whatever murder you've done, you can be the worst sinner on the planet. I'm here to tell you that God loves you, Jesus died for you, and God wants a relationship with you. No ifs, ands, buts, or qualifications. That's it. Set. Simple. Straightforward. He loves you. See, if some are in and some are out, then some of us are sure that we're out. It's just the way our brain works. The only way that I can be confident that I can be in is if, that, if, if everyone is invited to be in. And uh, um, so God wants to have a relationship with you, whoever you are. Now, he won't force you. He won't force you. He doesn't want a relationship with a puppet. That's not a relationship. He wants a relationship with you, the person. And therefore, it's a relationship that you have to choose. So he won't force you. As much as he wants you, he won't force you. The relationship's got to be real. And you could only choose him because his grace is already operating in your life. You couldn't choose him on your own if his grace wasn't already there. But his grace won't force you to choose him. And so if you're here listening to this and there's a pull on your heart, any kind of pull, that is God's grace. That's the Holy Spirit working right there. Your job is to yield, to yield, to just say, okay, and now surrender the Holy Spirit inside of you. Surrender your life to Christ and start living for him. Because we believe in free will, we are able to say, God wants everybody in. Ali, Ali, and free, it's free for all. <laughs> Come on in. Come on in. Whoever, whoever uh, will say yes is on, on the end. And, and because we believe in free will, we don't have to say that whenever a tragedy happens, it was God's will. You know, when, when the tsunami kills thousands and the, the, the famine kills millions, we don't think that was God's perfect plan for their life. We don't think that that's glorifying God. Uh, Whitfield would say, oh, it's all predestined for his glory, but we don't see anything God glorifying about starting children. And, and when the endless, mindless wars go on throughout history and, and, and the atrocities caused by Hitler, 10 million people died under Hitler and Stalin and the rest, we don't think that was planned by God or predestined by God or enjoyed by God. No, it's, he hates it. He, that's stuff he hates. He's against that. He doesn't predestine that. He fights that. All evil, all evil is a result of wills other than God. That's our, our conviction. Whether it's human wills or angelic wills or a combination of the two. Uh, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good and his will is always good and his plans are always good and his purpose is always good. It's people, fallen people and fallen angels who screw things up. This world is all crappy because of, of other wills than God. God is always good. And so when, when you have kidnapped children and, and people sold into sexual slavery and unthinkable things done to these little kids and, and, and when the terrorist goes into a market and blows himself up and kills dozens of innocent people with him, we don't think that was God's plan for their life. That wasn't predestined by God or willed by God. That was the terrorist who thought that. Maybe there's influence of demonic spirits on top of it, but it wasn't God. It wasn't God. God is involved in all of the evil, but not to cause it. He's involved to minimize it. He's involved to bring good out of it. And the promise that he gives to all who will follow him is that if we'll, if we'll surrender all the stuff in our life to him, then everything we've suffered or everything we've made someone else suffer, every evil that's been done to us or every evil that we've done to others, it all can be used to his advantage and the advantage of the kingdom. He'll, it says in Romans 8.28 that God is involved in all things, working it together for the better for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And he's brilliant at doing that. He'll bring good out of it. Uh, nothing needs to be uh, regretted, but, but he doesn't cause it. He does not cause it. And I know that there's a lot of passages in the Bible that, that folks can use to interpret in ways uh, to support this idea that God controls all evil. I, I think that... Uh, 
George Whitfield and all Calvinists are very sincere people, and they sincerely want to just believe what the Bible teaches, and that's how they interpret the Bible. But I just have to say that, that I sincerely disagree with them. And um, um, I regard them as sisters and brothers in Christ, but I just disagree with that. There's other ways of interpreting those verses. And if that's something that you're interested in or wrestle with, I've written a lot of stuff on this. Uh, probably the most readable book is, is, is God to Blame. You can get out in the, in the gathering area if this is the topic that, 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 that you wrestle with. So we believe in free will, and we, need the, we believe that you have to use that free will under the influence of God's grace to choose a relationship with God, which brings me, brings me to my third point. And this is really the foundation. This is probably the most foundational belief of Woodland Hills Church right here. We believe that it's all about, it's all about a love-centered kingdom. This is what the Pietists saw. This is what John Wesley saw. That everything that God is about and everything that we're to be about is centered on love. And not just a wishy-washy kind of flowery love. People can define love in a lot of different ways. They can say that God's all loving even to the people that he, he damns to hell, predestines to go to hell. And you wonder if that's love, then what would hate look like? Uh, but uh, uh, so love can mean anything. But the Bible gives us a very specific definition of hell. The Bible, def- I mean, of, of love. <laughs> gives us a specific definition of hell too, but hell is the absence of the love. But here's the definition of love. It points us to Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3.16, if you have memorized John 3.16, everyone knows that. Well, this is 1 John 3.16. Memorize this one too. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ gave his life for us so also we should give our life for one another. That's what love looks like. Love is specifically defined as Jesus Christ dying for us on Calvary. That's what love looks like. Love's about ascribing worth to another across to yourself. Love's about sacrificing for another to ascribe worth to them. God is throughout eternity. Throughout all eternity, God is per- the perfect, other-oriented, self-giving love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, that's the love that God is. John says that God is love. And when that love is expressed towards fallen human beings... To rescue them, it looks like Calvary. The, the, the infinite depth to which God was willing to dive on our behalf reveals the infinite intensity of the love that God eternally is. And it's all about that love. God, the whole, the whole creation program, what, what everything is about here, this is why we exist. God created all of this to invite others in on that perfect love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God wants other dance partners, as it were, with the, the, the dance of the triune God. He wants to share himself with us. And so God creates this world to invite others in. But it's got to be chosen because it won't be coerced. He wants it with, with genuine people. And, and God created the world so that as we're invited in on this dance, we begin to reflect that love. And, and that love gets replicated in us and through us. And so we're transformed into the image of, of, of God, who's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, it says in, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that, and this is, I think, just a, the center of the center in terms of the kingdom. Uh, here's, here's the, it sums up the whole, whole call of the Christian life. He says, uh, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Live in love just as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. It sums it all up. Uh, as we have a real relationship with God that we choose to go into as we yield to the Spirit, out of that real relationship, uh, and as we yield, we're transformed into the image of God. And since God looks like Jesus, we begin to look like Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. Uh, to the degree that any individual or any group begins to look like Jesus, dying on the cross for his worst enemy, is praying for their forgiveness with his last breath. To that degree, that individual group is the kingdom of God. To the degree that any, indiv- any individual or community loves like Jesus, sacrifices like Jesus, serves like Jesus, to that degree, that individual and community is the kingdom of God. It is the true church. But to the degree that an individual or a community doesn't look like that, 
You know, if they call themselves Christian or they say that they're religious or whatever, to the degree that they don't reflect that kind of love, to the degree that they just sort of form their own little holy club and, and judge other people and look down on other people, try to control other people, maybe hate other people uh, in the name of righteous indignation or wrathful towards people. Throughout church history, we've seen people professing Christ kill people and persecute people. That is not the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if it has a title church on it or Christian on it or whatever. That's not the kingdom. And the only thing we're interested in here at Wilderness Church is the kingdom. It's the kingdom. So the center of what we're about is to be a community of people who, out of our relation with God, want to be manifesting the love of God by learning how to sacrifice for others, learning how to replicate Calvary. And so we individually and communally want to be a people who are living out the, the love of God to feed the hungry and to house the homeless and to love the unlovable, those who think they're unlovable, and to befriend those who are friendless and, and to express God's love for those who are most vulnerable in society. Uh, towards the elderly and the unborn and, and people with special needs and want to be a people who just manifest God's love to all people at all times looking for every opportunity we have to serve and to make a difference in this world for the glory of God. It's all about God being a God of, of unsurpassable love and that love being replicated in us and through us out of a relationship that we have with him. Amen and amen. Amen. Let's take a question. Yes. That's exciting stuff. That's just exciting stuff. Is there such a thing as loving judgment? Hmm, yes. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, yeah, there definitely is. But I'm not sure what you mean. It depends what you mean by judgment. Uh, it, there is, we all have to make judgments on things. Like, I think that, that's a good deal and that's a bad deal. Uh, or, I think this person's safe or this person's not safe. I, I, I call that discernment. And that's done out of love. You have, we always have to be discerning. Um, there is no such thing as loving judgment, if you mean by judgment, judging another person as though you're more righteous than them, looking down on someone. Uh, now you're not distinguishing between things. I call it, there's a horizontal and vertical judgment. When we distinguish between things, it's a horizontal judgment, okay? And that's normal, that's necessary, we've got to do that. This is safe, this is not safe, this is trustworthy, this is not trustworthy, etc., etc. That's loving. But to love and look down on another, where it, this is vertical judgment. Uh, your, your sins are worse than my sins. You know, you've got the two by four in your eye. I only have a speck. Jesus says, do the opposite. Um, it, that, that, that by definition is not loving. Because now you're detracting worth from another to give to yourself. Whereas love is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. Judgment is the antithesis of, uh, of, of, of love. That's why I argue in his book, uh, Repenting of Religion, that religion is, it, it is actually the quintessential expression of the fall, it's the, of original sin. Uh, so there's, again, our, our hostility towards religion. And there is loving judgment in, in this sense. That God in love, uh, is, uh, there's a time where he judges. And that's just a matter of saying what is true. The final judgment is, I think, just turning the light on and saying what is true. And what's compatible with me and what's not compatible with me. And whatever's not compatible with him out of his love is burned up. I think this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, it, it, love burns away everything that's inconsistent. All the hate and all the sin and all that's inconsistent with God's love. That's the judgment of God. Um, it's just... Asking the question, what is true? Let's take one more. If I can do it in one minute, we can uh, keep this. The Bible says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. In what way does baptism affect our salvation relationship with Jesus? Excellent question. All right. Um, Look at it. I got to spend a second here to figure out the quickest way to answer this, because now I'm down to 45 seconds. (laughs) I get a glass of water, so that's another 40, and I'm down to 40 seconds. Okay. Look at it. Uh, two things, two things to say here. Number one, most, and this, I don't, 
Don't get freaked out, okay? Don't get freaked out. But uh, most uh, scholars would argue that that passage is not part of the original text of Mark. Uh, it, it's not found in a lot of the early manuscripts, and I think that's probably true. So I, uh, that, actually, Mark 16 from verse 9 on uh, is very dubious in, in the textual tradition. Um, it, it is the longest segment of scripture that is uh, called into question. Uh, the other one is, is, is John chapter 8 about the woman being caught in the uh, act of adultery. So my first response would be to say, ah, I don't think it's part of the original. But having said that, even if it is, uh, there's an answer for it. It's assumed. I mean, you have, uh, throughout the Bible, the general thrust of things is have faith in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the message. You have it, I counted it once, 123 times I think it is. Uh, believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Have faith in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the, the constant message. Here and in Acts 2, you find believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. I'd be careful about overturning all the simply believe and be saved, overturning all that with these, these two verses. Uh, the way to understand these, I think, is simply this. It's, it's assumed in the early church, it's assumed that if you have faith in Jesus, you'll be baptized. If you have faith in Jesus, that means you're, you're part of the bride. And the way you enter the bride in the early church, and this is what we believe here in the hills, is that you're, you're baptized. It is the wedding ceremony uh, that introduces you into the Christian faith and joins you to the bride. So it's a matter of course. If you believe, uh, then you'll, you'll, you'll uh, uh, be baptized. But he's not saying that baptism is, is, is what causes you to be saved. Okay? It, it's not like baptism is some kind of magical thing. I mean, people have this picture of God where, uh, you know, at final judgment, there's a person there who loved God, believed in Jesus, submitted their life, lived for him, but they weren't baptized. And so God is going to go, oh, you weren't baptized? You're out of here. And it's like, uh, like a technicality. The person might say, oh, I didn't know about it. Too bad, too bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sucks to be you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Someone should have told you. Those silly Christians, they're always leaving all that stuff. No, so... I think baptism is the norm to be introduced to the body of Christ, but it doesn't itself save you. It's just the first way of expressing the faith that saves you. All right. What role does the Holy Spirit play in our personal relation with Jesus? Everything. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. Uh, I said earlier that you could not choose to enter this relationship on your own. You could not. No one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.3. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us uh, to, uh, to believe in Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't force us. See, that's where I think the mistake happens. People think that if you're saved by grace, God has to, it has to be irresistible. Uh, it, God, you know, just coercively turns your heart towards him. And I don't think God does that. That would make, that, that would, that, that would make you a, a puppet in this. But the Holy Spirit does empower you. This is what John Wesley believed. That God's out there at all times and all places working everyone's heart to soften their heart. Uh, they're dead in, 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 in their sins apart from God's grace. So God empowers them to believe, but doesn't force them to believe. And then when we hear the gospel, we either yield to the Holy Spirit or, we, or, or, or not. And then a, a, after we've yielded, as we're, as we're uh, walking out this thing, the Holy Spirit is constantly in our, in our life, pulling us in the, in the direction of Christ-likeness. He's constantly there, empowering us to live like Christ and to serve and sacrifice like Christ. We always have the power to resist him. Lord knows we're all too good at that. <laughs> You know, and so the Bible talks a lot about grieving the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't suppress the fire. No, yield. Our job is always to be yielding. Uh, but our job is not to be cranking it out with our own works. That, that, this isn't a, uh, you know, a, a self-help pep rally kind of thing. Uh, we, we can't crank anything out. The most we can do, but it's everything, is to freely choose to yield. And we yield to the Holy Spirit who's working in our life. God's always pulling us. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the embodiment of, 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 of Jesus' character in us. 
And so he's always pulling us, the DNA of Jesus, saying, come on, yield, yield. And every day, if, if we walk awake, if we stay awake, if we live in love, and just our, our, our loving people, that we teach this all the time here, that to cultivate the mindset where every person you see, you're just loving them and blessing them and, and looking for opportunities to serve them. If we stay awake and aware of God's presence and, and our, our, our blessing people, we'll, we'll notice the Holy Spirit pulling us in certain directions and uh, giving us opportunities to grow a little bit more like Christ. If we walk asleep, and live our life in sort of secularville, and not being aware of God's presence, well, then we're suppressing the Holy Spirit all the time without even noticing it. That's why it's so important to stay awake and to stay yielded to the Holy Spirit. Okay, good. Any other questions? How can God still be all-powerful if he allows us to have power in our decisions and free will? Mm. Very good. Uh, here, here's how. God's all-powerful in, in, in the sense that, this is my view anyways, uh, in the sense that, uh, before the creation of the world, he has all the power. And he has the power to take it back whenever he wants. Uh, but he decides to create a world in which he gives s- some say-so away. If you define power as say-so, power to influence, that's what, that's what we have. And free will is, is the capacity to influence the world, the direction the world goes, it, to this degree. So I've got say-so over my kids and family and, and, and all, all over the place. We all have our little kingdoms here. Our job is to bring our say-so in line with his say-so, so that now he's carrying out his say-so through our say-so. Say-so? So, uh, uh, so, so God gives, as it were, he has 100% of the power, but he gives shares of it away, you know, if you will. Every time he creates a free agent, there's a little, little domain of creation there that God does not now have unilateral say-so over it. Now, he still has the power to revoke it if he wanted to. But that would defeat the purpose. So God, in a sense, limits his power by deciding to create this kind of a world. A world where there are free agents. But that's, that, that's really no limitation on God's power at all. It's just a, a statement of what kind of world he decided to create. It's like if God decides to create a, a bunny, well, well then, then the, the bunny is, is, is not going to uh, be a giraffe. It's not going to have a neck that's really long. Because by definition, a bunny's not a giraffe. Well, God could turn the bunny into a giraffe, but by deciding to create the bunny, he decided not to create a giraffe. But you wouldn't say that that means he's not all-powerful. It just means he decided to create this kind of a creature rather than that kind of a creature. So, uh, so also, we got to decide to create this kind of a world rather than a world where he can control everything. He could have created that world. What a boring world that would have been. But he decided to create this interesting, risky kind of world where there are free agents. All right, wonderful, wonderful. Anything else? Got time for one more, maybe two more. Didn't Paul say something about God fashioning some vessels, people, for honor and some for dishonor? Does this mean that some people don't have free will to choose? Yeah, oh, good. Paul did say something about that. I talk about this in Is God to Blame? I have a whole chapter on this. This is Romans 9. Uh, probably, Romans 9 and the book of Job are, I think, the two most misinterpreted passages in the Bible. Uh, in Romans 9, Paul says, What if God, out of one lump of clay, wants to make some vessels for honor and some for, for dishonor? And what if he did this uh, to show his wrath on the vessels of dishonor and, uh, and his mercy on the vessels of, of, of honor? Or something like that. So you get this picture of, of, of God. Here's the lump of clay. And you know, I always picture you know, a little, little kid, five-year-old kid. And here's a lump of clay, and he makes some good vessels, good people, and then some bad people. And he smashes the bad people for being bad, and then turns to the good, the good people and says, aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? Are you going to worship me, or I'll do that to you? And uh, you know, if little Johnny did that, we'd get him to a therapist kind of quickly, I, I would think. It's like, I don't know. But see, this is the people's picture of God. Yes, I mean, good ones and bad ones. Bad ones, you know? You can see why, you know, I, I can empathize with John Wesley's uh, statement. That, that, that looks pretty... See, I, I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. I, I think it's just taking it all out of context. And, 
the only thing I can, I only have time to say about this right now. There's a lot more that could be said, but, but, but you know, if, if you look at that clay analogy, we assume that it, it means unilateral control. God unilaterally makes vessels of honor and unilaterally makes vessels of dishonor. But whenever you find analogies in the New Testament that, that, that are playing off of things that were used in the Old Testament, it's always important to look at the context in the Old Testament to see what they might mean. That, that, that this is the world they lived in. And so if you look at Jeremiah 18, which is the only place where the potter clay analogy is fleshed out, Jeremiah 18. Here, Jeremiah takes, take, uh, God takes Jeremiah, and, and what's happened is God has decreed to bring judgment on Israel. And some of the Israelites are saying, oh, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed, because God decreed judgment on us. Jeremiah 18, 12 says that. And so God says, Jeremiah, come here. He brings him to this potter's house, and there's this potter making this vessel. And he's got one kind of a plan, but the clay is not cooperating. The clay is being nasty, so he changes his plan and makes a different kind of a vessel. And then God says, okay, Jeremiah, okay, now look, you go back and tell the people of Israel, I am the potter, you are the clay. So because I have authority over the clay, uh, if I decree that I'm going to do this, but the people change, all change and do something different. So if I'm planning to bless the nation, but then it turns evil, I'll change, I'll revoke my blessing and then I'll bring a judgment. But if I am, am fashioning judgment for a people, a vessel of dishonor, and then the people repent, well then I'll, uh, my plans will change and I'll bring a different kind of a vessel. Uh, so you tell them, don't go saying it's no use. It, just because I said it's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. No, the reason I said it's going to happen is so that you'll change so it won't happen. So the point of the potter clay analogy isn't to show God's unilateral Arnold Schwarzenegger power uh, to fashion good people and bad people and damn the bad people for being the way God made them, like little demented Johnny. No, the, the point of the, the, the clay analogy is to show that God's flexible. It's the exact opposite. God's flexible. No, you know, the clay, he responds. He wisely responds. The vessel he makes, well, it depends on what kind of clay we make ourselves. So our job is to be soft and pliable in the hand of God so he can fashion us to be in the beauty of Jesus Christ. We can choose to go the other way, and then he's got to fashion something else. You don't want to go there. No, no, be pliable and let him fashion your heart in the direction of Christ's likeness. Jesus tells us to keep his commands if we love him. Don't we have to keep his commands to be in relationship with him? What's the difference between this and religion? Excellent point. Excellent point. That's a very good point. Um, I, I think it's like this. Um, I, I, I talk about this in my book, Repenting of Religion. I have a whole chapter on this uh, that might find helpful. I, I talk about the, the sociopathic or psychopathic husband who wants to... Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sociopath, so he doesn't have any of the reality of love inside of him. But for whatever motivation, he wants to, he wants to appear very loving. And, um, uh, and so he studies, meticulously studies, as some sociopaths do. What does it look like to be loving, to be in a marriage relationship, for example? And uh, studies this carefully. And because, precisely because he lacks the reality of love on the inside and has invested so much energy on looking loving on the outside... He, was, he would probably look better than the person who actually has the love. And those of us who have worked with sociopaths know that. Uh, they, they can cry better than people who really feel pain. And it's just amazing what, what they can do. They, they, they parrot. Uh, you, from the outside, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, except perhaps that the sociopath can, is, it looks better. And in fact, religious people can look better than folks who have the real relationship. Because they're getting life from it. They're invested. This is all they know. This is all they know. That's what religion is. It, it, it uh, keeps the shell and gets life from keeping up the shell. Anyone who was married to the sociopath would, would sooner or later begin to suspect that this is too perfect. It, 
there's, this is, there's something off here. There's a lack of reality here. But you'd have to be on the inside of it to notice it. Religion looks better than reality on the outside. Uh, but if you get on the inside, it's altogether different. So here's the thing. If you're in a relationship, you will do, if, if you're in an authentic relationship, you'll do many things. Relationships always involve activities. There's mandates that come with love. Love carries its own mandates. And that's why anybody, you know, John says, anyone who says you love God but you hate your brother, you're, you're lying. You're kidding yourself or something. There's a mandate. Uh, when, you, when, when you love God, there, there comes this ought with it. But it's not an ought that's imposed to you as a rule that a sociopath might obey. It's an ought that comes from the reality of what you're doing on the inside. Are you following me here? And so, uh, yeah, there are commands. But we don't do the commands to get in the relationship. The commands comes with the relationship. And as a matter of fact, when you're in a relationship, the more you in, get involved in the commands, it actually fosters the relationship. And so you might find, I've, I've had people who, uh, you know, I, I don't do a lot of counseling, but once in a while I, I, I get involved. In, and so folks who want to love each other, but they just don't feel anything, I encourage them to start, you, you, you at least want to love, you want to want to love. And so start living this way, start praying for one another, start you know, treating each other in loving ways, you know, and start, and you'll find that sometimes the reality will catch up to you. Because uh, in the depth of your being, I think you do love each other. That's why you're, you're working to be in this relationship. You just need to get the reality, the experiential reality to, to line up with it. So if you love Jesus, yeah, there's a lot of commands that are there. I, there if I love my wife, I'm going to be kind to her. I'm going to be considerate to her. I'll, I'll sacrifice for her. Uh, and in a real sense, I need to, to be in the relationship. I need to be considerate. Uh, but I don't do those things in order to try to get her to like me or to be secure with her. If I'm doing that to try to feel secure, and if that's the relationship, see, for a sociopath, that's everything. If you're really in love, that's just the, that's just the expression of what is, what, what is everything, you see? And so uh, you love God, do the commandments, not to get him to like you or to feel secure. That's what religion is. You do it because it's really there. There's a reality that's there. All right, excellent question. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Uh, i got time for one more. Uh, how does someone know when they're, they've crossed over from being a believer to being a disciple? Is it based on the works that we do? Okay, excellent. Uh, no, it's not based on the works that you do. Uh, because you can be doing the works, you know, and, and it doesn't mean anything. You're a disciple the moment that, there's no external measuring rod here. A disciple is simply someone who comes under another and is disciplined by them. That's all it means. Disciples, one who's disciplined by another. And so uh, we're called to be disciples, which means we're, we're called to submit our lives and say, Lord, I want you to teach me. I want you to lead me. I want you to correct me. I want you to transform me. It's not about how far down the road you are. That, that means anything. It's what road are you on? The believer, the mere believer, the, the believer will just believe what I'm supposed to believe and do the obligations, my religious obligations. I was taught that as a kid. Fulfill your religious obligations. So you'll do that, and that's the security there. But your heart isn't under any, your heart isn't under Christ. You see, you're just doing it to not go to hell. Now, but see, to, what we're called to do is to start joining this love relationship, which is a heart disposition. And since you're on a road of relationship rather than just a road of pharisaical, sociopathic religion. And so it starts by right now. You just say, I submit. I, I submit. I surrender. Uh, and, and, and now you start asking the question, what does he will for my life today? What does he will? What, what in my life does he approve of? What doesn't he approve of? And you start moving in that. You start cultivating that. And sometimes you feel stuff. Sometimes you don't. Don't worry about that. 
just keep on going down that road. That's what the relationship is all about. All right. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and if you have any need whatsoever to, that you'd like to have prayed for, come on up here and talk to these folks, please, and share that with them. Uh, don't, don't carry that burden out alone. And uh, um, I just want to seal this in our hearts uh, uh, by praying for the Holy Spirit to be working here. So, uh, Abba, Father, as uh, we're getting ready to leave this place, or as the pod listeners are getting ready to turn off their, their pods, uh, Lord, we seal this on our hearts Whatever it is that we're supposed to take away from this message, whether it's about our personal relationship or about our, our choice or, or about the kingdom, God, sear it into our hearts, God. Kingdomize our hearts and minds as we leave this place. Uh, God, be working to further transform us to be in the image of Jesus Christ, to love every single person we come in contact with, uh, to bless them, and to just be a manifestation of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world. Love the world.